0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. I will begin with a
1: little bit of a review of what we did last time so that as people come in, they won't miss anything, hopefully, uh, unless they weren't here last time, in which case they shouldn't have been late. Um, <laughs> to get the review. <laughs> no, I know people have busy evenings. So I know a lot of people are participating by uh, catching up on the podcast. If you are joining for the first time tonight, uh or you're joining us on the podcast for the second episode, the second edition of this course, this is the second um, uh, module in the course of Ritual Innovation for elbow with Temple Beth So Pause what you're doing and go and listen to the first modules that you're uh, up to date on what it is that we're doing. This is a course that's focused on ritual innovation. The thesis behind the course is the idea that ritual is routine elevated. So ritual is when we take things that are routine and we're going to use a new word throughout tonight as well, which is habit. And we take those routines and we elevate them. Last time, we did a lot. We went through a lot. And we're going to do that review by quickly going through the slideshow, which we're going to uh, continue to give access to all the participants in the class um, to see on your own. But we're going to use it also as a review. So, I'm putting it in the chat now for our participants. And I'm going to screen share it also so that we can take a look at it together as I do a quick review of what we did last week. So
2: put this in present mode so we can look at it together.
1: So last week, we I gave some of the references for the books I recommend. I have these books right here in front of me. Uh, I actually finished The Power of Ritual Um, last weekend, I was almost done with the book before I got started. It was my last one to finish. So that's all done. I've got all the books here. I recommend each and every one of them. I actually had a wonderful email exchange with Casper just this past week on Power of Ritual. I can recommend to you if you enjoy Harry Potter, we're going to get a little bit into this today. But in Casper's book, The Power of Ritual, he discusses the origins and the impetus for his very popular, sensational gathering and podcast, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which is not just about Harry Potter, it's about the secular embrace of sacred textual reading, which we're going to talk about in depth today as an approach to ritual innovation. The idea behind this class is not just to learn about ritual, it's also to, oh, that was fun. Um, it's not just to learn
2: about ritual. It is to um where
1: did it go. It's not just to learn about ritual. Ha, huh? it is to uh create ritual. And so we're going to get into that ritual creation um, starting in today's class at, towards the end of the class today. We shared some personal and family rituals together. I talked about our family's personal rituals. We talked about the idea of what ritual is to us, and we shared about that idea. And we explored the idea of the four quadrants of what rituals can be. So we talked about this idea of the y-axis being things that are of high significance and of less significance. So ritual isn't necessarily something that has high significance or low significance. It exists on that spectrum. And on a different axial spectrum, we have something that happens once in a lifetime and something that happens routinely or regularly at regular intervals. So we have things in different quadrants. um, And we started to explore what is the difference. We started to tease out the difference between routine and ritual. What's the difference between habit and ritual, routine and ritual? And towards the very end of the class last time, I revealed that one of the principles of ritual is that it must contain an element of something that is beyond the practical. It may be practical, but it must have an element of something that is Beyond the practical. And that is a principle of making something ritually important, ritually powerful. We talked about the spaghetti project and this idea of the science of the effectiveness of ritual and how we can actually study the data behind ritual and learn that people who eat together before doing important things are actually more effective at doing their jobs as teams. We talked a little bit about the Jewishness behind this idea and how we do this after something important. So we have kiddush, we have se'udat mitzvah, we have the idea of a fixed meal that takes place after something important. Other examples of rituals that work at work, and we talked about all of these different examples, all of which can be found in Keswin's book, which is called the... um, rituals roadmap. We talked about ritual authenticity. We're going to talk about that more this week. We talked about different examples of rituals that work in Jewish life. So we um, created these lists together, things that work at home and in the synagogue. And we talked about things that don't fall into either one of these um, binary categories.
2: And then we did a little ritual together.
1: We'll do more in the coming weeks. And then we talked about some examples of the explicitly Jewish rituals that achieve things that rituals do, which decrease anxiety. They support us through transitions. They help us with group motivation and bonding. They increase creativity. They improve the quality of the experience. They release us from addictions. They do all sorts of powerful things. So that might be saying a traveler's prayer decreases anxiety, supports me through a transition. If I do it in a group before a group trip, it could motivate the bonding. I don't know about increasing creativity. Could improve improve the quality of the experience. I don't know about releasing me from an addiction, but it certainly could. Uh, It could release me from my addiction to doing other bad habits that I might do instead of that, like taking like drinking on the plane or taking uh, ex- uh taking medication beyond what was prescribed to me right taking that extra Ativan that I didn't need to take because I didn't try other non medication based means first right so these are interventions these are these are ways that we can use ritual as intervention there are also all other sorts of jewish ways that rituals can do this for us? What about going to the mikvah before a wedding night? Decrease anxiety, support through transition. If the whole female part of the wedding party comes, could be motivation and bonding, could be a creative experience, could improve the quality of the experience. There are all sorts of things that could happen from that. You could apply this to so many different Jewish rituals as well. Okay. And increase the feeling of control, by the way. That's the other one at the bottom there. Rituals always increase the feeling of control. And by the way, I think that that is integrally, um, uh Ozenk doesn't expl- explicitly or expressly say this in his book. I think that's integrally tied to the principle that it's beyond the practical. Sometimes we cannot practically achieve anything in the moment that we're in But we can increase the feeling of being in control by putting a project in front of us of something that we can do. I can't do anything. It's the night before my wedding. Everything else is done. But I can go to mikvah. Right? I can go and do this thing. Or I can say a prayer. I can do it right. This is the counter argument to, you know, thoughts and prayers don't do anything. Maybe they don't do anything. And maybe we really ought to do something effective and active, but maybe thoughts and prayers do do a something for some people. So I'm not entirely dismissive of the concept that sometimes we need to do something to increase our sense of being in control, because the feeling of being in control is critical to counter other negative expressions of emotions that we experience and, and, and internal and external expressions. Okay. So these were the principles of rituals that we got to last time, and we're catching up at the end of the review, and I'll ask if there are questions after this. So rituals have a magical je ne sais quoi factor to them. They're done with intentionality. The person has to be tuned into the moment. It can't be without thinking about it. A ritual carries a symbolic value that gives a sense of purpose, and that's beyond the practical. It can also be practical, but it must also be beyond the practical. A ritual evolves over time to better suit the people and the situation. It is not a stagnant concept. I add two of my own that are very Jewish. One is rituals must look and feel authentic to the tradition. And rituals get stronger through repetition. This is addressed a little bit more in Power of Ritual with uh, Casper Terifal. he addresses it much more clearly in that book in terms of the getting stronger through repetition. Basically, it lends an authenticity to the the ritual. So these are intertwined. Okay, we're going to get to the three Ps in just a moment. But before we do, I want to know if anyone has any questions about this. I'll put the link to the presentation again uh, for those who came in after I put that link in. Um, Any questions about any of what I just said before
2: we keep going? Yeah. Okay. So let's keep going. All right. So I am going to.
1: Encourage you to actively participate in this next part. So you'll unmute when you're ready to share a something. So the three P's of rituals. This comes from Keswin's book. Keswin has this idea that the three P's of ritual is a formula that makes for ritual in a group environment. That This is what makes ritual effective in a group environment. We're going to talk about this group environment conception of ritual, and then we're going to move over to Casper's concept of uh, ritual to two of the emergent factors in his book, which are entirely focused on the individual experience, and then we're going to move on to some other work. So we're going to continue in this realm that we've been in, which is this sort of realm of the collective, the communal ritual experience. And then we're going to move more and more into the individual experience for a little bit. So when we get into the three Ps of ritual, what do you think of when you think of a a group space? So think of a workplace or a nonprofit organization, a communal organization, synagogue included. When you think about psychological safety, What do you think of as psychological safety? What does that mean in a workplace or in a um, group environment, in a shared group environment where the group is working to produce something together? You can put it in the chat if you're not in a position to unmute. You can go ahead and just unmute and shout it out. No need to raise hands. I
3: think it's like when a person thinks about all the various components that make up who that person is, their likes, their interests, their culture, their ethnicity, their religion, every possible component, their sexual orientation, every possible component of, you know, that makes that person who that person is, that person feels safe in that environment with those A, those elements of the persona and just the person as a whole being exposed and feel
2: safe in being exactly who they are.
1: Okay, good. Safe in being exactly who they are, all components included. That's really helpful as a thought. That's a support group
3: too. Like, uh, so I do the AJU support groups of people converting to Judaism. <clears throat> so there are rules about uh, how we suggest things to each other and we make it safe to share and to not be criticized.
1: Good. So safe to share, to not be criticized, that all parts of yourself are welcome. Okay. Good. So what Keswin says is that rituals, when done right, have these two components to it, psychological safety and purpose. This first half, psychological safety, is the doing of whatever it takes to help ensure that everybody is included and all of their whole selves are included, whatever that means in an environment. So an environment has to be safe for everybody to share There has to be a free exchange of ideas. The example that she gives in the book that I really love is this. So she says this, I'm going to read this little excerpt from the book that I love. It's on page 10 of her book. I spoke with Daisy Auger-Dominguez, a workplace strategist who designs inclusive and equitable workplace and social impact strategies. She told me about a brilliant ritual she uses to create social psychological safety with her client teams. Whenever I've taken over a new team or function, I have everyone participate in manager integration exercises wherein she encourages people to consider the impression she or any manager leaves on a group. She explains, my favorite is where I come together with my direct reports and then I leave the room so that they can answer three questions. So she's gone from the room and they're answering these three questions. Number one, what do we know about Daisy? Number two, what do we wish we knew about Daisy? Number three, what do we wish Daisy would know about us? I then come back to the group, review the answers, which are not attributed to anyone in particular unless they want to, and add, compliment, etc. It's a great trust-building exercise that requires a huge level of transparency and vulnerability. This ritual shows psychological safety in action. So psychological safety is the establishment of an environment where it's possible for everybody to feel like their ideas and their whole selves are welcome. That's psychological safety in an in an exercise. It's gotta it's gotta work for everybody. Everyone's gotta be included, and all parts of every person have to be included. Purpose is purpose, it's vision, it's a shared thing that people are working towards. What I love as the idea of purpose is that purpose is, this is um uh, Larry Fink, who's a, a very influential CEO. He says, purpose isn't the sole pursuit of profits. It's the animating force for achieving them. So purpose is
2: the why and the how
1: for achieving whatever it is you want to put out into the world as a group. Purpose isn't what you're putting out there. It's the why and the how. And this begins to get a little bit wonky, the psychological safety and purpose stuff, until maybe you begin to start to think about it in synagogue life a little bit. What's psychological safety in synagogue life, now that we've talked about it a little bit?
2: Is, like, feeling welcome?
1: Yeah, who feeling welcome?
0: Everybody. Everybody, like the congregants, visitors, maintenance people, staff, clergy, everybody.
1: Everybody, I'll even go to the extreme. It's acknowledging and being aware of the number of people who are part of demographics that are likely to come into the synagogue environment with traumatic experiences and memories from synagogue environments and therefore need a certain amount of, of handling, you need a a certain type of treatment in order to feel welcome because of their likely prior experiences in similar institutions, right? It's everyone feeling welcome and it's going out of our way to ensure that people who are likely to be mistreated are not mistreated or that our ADA compliance is there even before we have people who need to use those things, Right. Making sure that our Torah reading table is accessible even before we have a Torah reader who needs it. Right. So it's thinking about those things uh, proactively for psychological safety. So that when someone walks in, they think, oh, that's what this place is designed for.
0: I feel like also just the vibe. Um, and my mom, my you knew my mom at Beth, Um but the people yeah. who know her at Betham have no idea how anti-Shul she was <laughs> most of my life until she encountered Betham. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was just the Bible. it was like little things that, let's say, on a Friday night when the rabbis would say, okay, turn to someone and say Shabbat Shalom, or everyone would dance around for La um and it and it kind of gives that message to everyone like, hey, we're all here together, it's a party, we're all friends even if we haven't met. And and it really carries through to everybody who's there.
1: It really does, yeah.
0: And it changed her whole experience of being Jewish.
1: It's an amazing thing.
2: Yeah. Tybal, you can jump in. I I see you have a hand raised. Um, I, I know I was gonna, the,
4: the begin, in the beginning when you were talking about the workplace, I haven't been in a full time workplace since 1988 when I was injured at work and it wasn't a Jewish setting, it was a very corporate setting and no one then would have cared about ritual workplace. Anyway, so I'm just saying that part I really, was very foreign to me because the corporate um, the things that preoccupations and were different. but now that you're talking about synagogue safety, it just seems to me that some of it, and I think Denise started it with a little bit, but I wanted to make it even bigger. it has to do with what I'm going to call literacy, which is in its literacy in general, like what what people talk about the choreography not just a prayer service, but knowing what to do when. And I would think even if you were a person more non-Jewish staff, they still need to know, like, I don't know, even looking on Zoom, when it's okay to swap a microphone out or not. And then very specifically, um, let me get your face up to make sure it's okay to say this, because I was – because I'm now the, a member of four shuls.
1: <laughs> whatever, well, it is, it's, whatever it is, it's okay to say, I promise.
4: Well, and I was talking about, um, one, I was made an honorary, and three I've chosen. But I was saying it's so funny because my local Maryland shul, the clergy's all first name, and they're very whatever, But the but it's a synagogue without a membership directory on purpose. Like either you know the people you're supposed to know or go away. And I was just commenting to someone how interesting, how welcoming Beth Am is, but I think that I've intuited that it's still formal in a certain way that even people who know the clergy well don't call them by their first name versus my Maryland one where no one may greet you, but the clergy's all first name. So I think... So some of it is just general Jewish, you know, when to sit or stand up or when it's okay to interrupt, whether you're whatever. But then some of it is each Jewish community really does do things differently.
1: Yeah. You know, Tybell, I have a theory about that. So there's somebody in our community who brought up uh, this issue at a ritual committee meeting. And this is somebody who, who, for context, has some very close personal relationships with the clergy just because of the age of this person's children and the clergy's children. And what they said was the following. It's so important that the common denominator among everybody in the community in public settings be that everyone call all clergy by their title and last name. Because if if Karen walks up to me and says... Oh hey Hillary, how are you doing? And Denise walks by and she knows that she and I don't have a Hillary relationship. Then she, she our relationship is is diminished even more than it already might have felt to her, and also diminished by means of oh, Karen has a relationship with Rabbi Chorney that I don't have uh unnecessarily so because i might be thinking in that moment what the heck is karen doing calling me hillary you know and that might be a whole thing <laughs> but i'm i'm making all this up the point is that what we don't want to do is to create the the um to create the kind of image to anyone that the clergy have relationships with some congregants and not with others that are inviting in and that aren't inviting in and a community where you're either in or you're not in is the very kind of community table where I can imagine that like yeah of course you call the clergy by their first names because you just you either know or you don't know I would call that a high context community right you just sort of like have to know and have to know your way in
4: but but what's so funny about that? Because because then my my other one, my Cleveland one, is in the middle. Because I would say Bethama is so welcoming, which is I wanted to be part of. The Cleveland is welcoming. Cleveland's first name, you don't say Steve, you say Rabbi Steve. For example, Rabbi Josh, Rabbi Hal. The Maryland one, they say to all the new members, the clergy's Hamish, it's the congregation isn't. I I don't mean to go on and on. I'm just saying, but that's part of what I think psychological safety is. I agree. And I think it's harder if you want to go to disability and welcoming people because there are some people who aren't as good at noticing social cues and this has doesn't have to do with in person. I guess it's harder on Zoom. They they might there might be miscues that they don't even
1: realize. Right. I I totally agree with you, and I actually think that is you brought up an even better example than I had brought up of the psychological safety. I think that is the perfect example of psychological safety in a community is coming up with a way where there is a unanimous agreement about the way that we regard our clergy so that everybody immediately feels safe knowing how to refer to the clergy whatever way that is everyone should feel safe doing that so that they don't feel like they're part of some caste system in terms of how they're allowed to relate to their clergy or not that should be immediate safety and purpose Um, in terms of mm -hmm. may
4: i add just one more sorry i did see joanna's hand but there are only a few of us so All these three are conservative that I've joined, whatever, but we're at a new conservative just before the pandemic because it was near the Hebrew nursing home where my father-in-law, so we switched. But the previous one where I was head of all sorts of committees, I used to jokingly talk about the senior rabbi and whom he kissed in the hallway and whom he didn't and access, and I was never anyone he kissed. But I used to, like, report to my spouse who got kissed and how many times. And, yeah, it was women. He was kissing, not whatever, because that was a sense of who could get things done more effectively. And when I was a committee chair, I knew that there are certain things I had to do through other people, so I would look for some of the kissies to go ask the senior rabbi what I needed.
1: Right. And I think that politics like that are the very – Toxic underbelly of uh, of of non is psychological unsafety. Um, is there anybody else who wanted to say something before I went on to uh, to
2: purpose? Okay, so purpose
1: is very simple. Purpose is, you know, it's the argument for um, for still having a synagogue that has a shared vision of what Judaism is like. I think that there is what to be said about people having really individual relationships with God and with ritual and with the tradition. One of the things that I often say to people who are exploring different pathways to Judaism and to the practice of Judaism is in Orthodox Judaism, there is a very comforting ubiquity to what is expected of you in every environment in your life. The way that you will act in terms of how you eat, pray, do, it's expected to be the same, whether you're in the synagogue, whether you're in your home, whether you're in the grocery store, etc., etc. In the reform movement, there is a comforting sense of of uniformity to the autonomy that you get to experience in every setting. Whatever you do in your home, in the grocery store, whatever you do in the synagogue, there's an uh, intense autonomous relationship one has with ritual, with God, with liturgy, with whatever it is that one does. In conservative Judaism, the split that I find is compelling and appealing to so many people, whether they choose Judaism or whether in life they find themselves magnetically pulled to the conservative tradition. And not for now, but for another time, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this theory of mine. I would say that sort of the purpose behind a conservative synagogue is to allow for there to be a temple like existence of a shared purpose space around ritual, where we all reached an agreement as to how we are going to ritually live and act under one roof, how we're going to pray, who's in and who's out, how are we going to do weddings, how are we going to eat, what is identity, how are we going to look on Israel, etc.,
2: etc. But get invited to somebody's Shabbat dinner and it could be it runs a gamut it could be anything
1: it really could be anything there's like quite the uniformity there's a variety too but there's quite the uniformity to the type of conservative services you'll experience most places it's like one of three citarees but it's pretty similar you'll get a pretty similar variety of of music where you where you go but what's different is what people's homes look like outside. And so there's this like split between what like the group like look life looks like and what individuals' lives look like. So in the in the case of these three Ps, I'd say that it's the group purpose that is so critical for people who are, are practicing conservative Judaism. When we come to the synagogue, we're saying, we have our individual life as conservative Jews, but when we walk into the synagogue, we are stepping into our zone of shared purpose. And I think that is more true for conservative Jews than for any other brand of Judaism. That's my contention. Anybody have thoughts on that, on that, uh, wild thesis of mine around <laughs> conservative Judaism and the split between home and
2: shul life? I think you're absolutely right. And I think that,
3: um again, when I talk to the groups and they're talking about children and how can we go to a Christmas tree, whatever comes up. And I do talk about in the home and outside the home and in shul and outside, you know what I mean? There is what we do in the home and what we do in synagogue could be different with some very basic
2: kinds of principles, let's say. So I think you're right.
1: Shul can be a very, very grounding place for people who are looking for rules in their world, for who are looking for boundaries for their spiritual lives and selves. It can be a place for psychological safety and purpose. And just to get to the equals performance part of it, I think that shuls that are radically welcoming and have a great sense of purpose perform very well by means of their members being satisfied and happy and by having great membership roles. I saw tybel 's hand first and then, and then Barbara.
4: Um, it's actually a
1: question because pandemic
4: mm-hmm. changes it. And I'll go back to the conservative synagogue where we were members for so long. And I was so active because I don't think that they would have, thought about it the same way. In many ways, they wanted the clergy doing things that they wouldn't do. I'll give you a few examples. Um, when uh, the sisterhood sent a bill, you had to pay for so many congregants for your kids' b'nai for luncheon. And the bill was emailed to me on a Shabbos morning, and no one understood why I found that upsetting that one, I didn't think, even if someone did email in their private life, but I didn't think a shill should be asking me for money because during that time period, the president of longstanding used to do emails to the congregation Shabbos morning. And to me, yeah, I see Barbara making a face because her screen is up. That's what I thought too. And people would say, well, are you Shomer Shabbos? Are you this or whatever? And I would say, well, that's not the question. And I'm not saying clergy or whatever, but like, I'll, I'll give an example. I just thought that if you weren't a doctor and weren't being called on Shabbos, even if you write, you shouldn't write on synagogue grounds in the parking lot. If you were driving under the conservative halacha, you should wait. I just thought that, and people saw that as like hypocritical well if i write elsewhere on Chavez, why are you saying i shouldn't end the show and i'll just stop so uh, obviously i'm intuiting that beth Am is very different but i'm saying this other place is considered a leading light of the conservative movement and it's growing i'm not i i think you may not realize how different in some ways beth it, is. that the congregants and the clergy have more congruent senses of ritual and what's going on
1: so i think i think that that what i hear you saying is actually something in between i i, I hear all of what you're saying what, what i what i sense is that you're talking about a strange gray zone which is neither the synagogue nor home but actually all those third spaces including email and communications and that sort of a a strange um, a strange place in which both clergy and also even more uncomfortably shul leadership has to ask ask the question when am i representing the synagogue and i can't because i've never been a synagogue leader who who are you people who decide to be synagogue lay leaders? You are man, you are a certain breed of people. I I applaud you. I I I could never. Like, thank you for paying me to do this. Um, I, I love you all and and revere you and respect you greatly. Uh but I you're amazing. Um, but I do know the clergy experience of of this, which is um rabbis cannot take their collars off. And trying to explain To a a sisterhood, you know, programming director or whatever that, you know, just because you're not standing on on shul grounds, you're representing the synagogue when you send an email on Shabbat is a really hard message to explain for all sorts of reasons, because the Internet is ethereal because and that's an Ethernet joke, too, because the you know, because the because the world is such a strange place and I agree with you that Temple Beth Am is definitely not your average conservative synagogue in terms of that kind of alignment. And yet I would say that there's, there's still an enormous gap, even though that gap might look different, between what most congregants at most conservative synagogues expect to happen on synagogue grounds versus what they think life looks like in in their homes having grown up at a synagogue myself that was very much not Temple Betham um, but i but your your questions are really really good ones and i think you're right that that this looks very different at other synagogues barbara's been waiting a nice long time so barbara
5: no problem i can wait i apologize apparently i thought this started at 7:30 uh, it started when the party started when you got here, Barbara. Go ahead. No, it didn't. I, I I disagree with you actually because to me, what goes on in the home is just as significant as what goes on in the synagogue. Um, even when I was a kid, we did Shabbos every week. We didn't go to Shabbat. We didn't go to services every week. Um, I'm born in San Fr- I was born in San Francisco. I'm a third generation native and San Francisco conservative is a lot different than what Los Angeles conservative is or at least it was then we went on the high holidays, I never knew who was Jewish in my classes in school I really didn't, I actually didn't find out till I got to college because I didn't go to school in Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur but I don't know if others did or didn't, but I didn't and nobody took off for, for Pesach or Sukkot Still, we had seder in our house where people that weren't as religious even as we were came because we were the religious family. Um, my father once took me to the shul to see what a sukkah looked like, which was built inside the shul because it was too cold in San Francisco to have it outside. But and I and and now yes, I'm more oriented both ways synagogue and home than I even was yet then and I even at this time I think I've taught Shimona to be more religious than I was at that point and I don't think it would have happened if it weren't for our home I mean yes I used to take her to shul every week when she was younger but there are no kids her age she's a 30 year old kid 30 year old person, adult who go to shul anymore Which is actually not surprising because they'll go later when their parents die, like I did. So I kind of don't think that the shul is all as any more important than what goes on in the home.
1: Yeah, Barbara, I don't disagree with you at all. I completely agree. I think what happens in the shul and what happens in the home is incredibly important. The only difference, the only thing I was getting at was, I think that what happens in your home is extremely different than what happens in lots of different congregants' homes throughout our shul. There are some congregants at Temple Beth Am for whom Shabbat never happens, you know, happens, so to speak, at home. Shabbat always happens. But Shabbat is never made in their homes. And there are plenty of people who are orthoprax, like my families are, right? That's a a word stolen, uh, borrowed from uh, Blue Greenberg, who is an incredible Orthodox feminist. Um, partnered, uh, Yitz Greenberg, who would say it's not about orthodoxy. It's not about the doctrine of, ortho- of, of um, orthodoxy, but about orthopraxy, right? So in my home, we turn off the refrigerator light and don't use it. You know, the television isn't on, the, we don't cook on Shabbat and we, and our food is heated on hot plates, on flatas, and that sort of a thing. And there is just a, an extraordinary diversity to the way that it's practiced in the home. But in the synagogue, there is an import place to us figuring out how we're going to come to a consensus as to our purpose. When it comes to Shabbat, but I agree with you entirely, Barbara, that there's actually possibly more import as to what we actually. Because of that, it's so important what we do in the home, and it makes a big difference. So yes, your point is so so well taken. I, I,
5: yeah, I think that it might be interesting for Taibel and, and Joanna to understand our our synagogue. I mean, they're from other places, and like. I'm so impressed, especially by Joanna with her knowledge. I love listening to her. But we have three different groups in our synagogue. I happen to belong to the Library Minion. The Library Minion is the more orthodox of, of the Minions as far as the practice of the people. But it's not really any more orthodox in the practice of, of the rabbis or the cantors. Meaning you, um, and upstairs. And then there's the Beitenu, which used to be practically reformed but has moved up towards where we are. Uh, the Library Minion is a, a minion of many rabbis, many learned people, whose only difference between Orthodox and conservative is that they. They sit with men and women in the same synagogue. I mean, some of we have a lot of people in, in the library of Minion, fewer upstairs in the main sanctuary that are that way, and I find that to be a really interesting thing that that one shul can have so many different people within the same thing and enjoying the services separately but yet together.
1: I totally agree. And I would add many for, for another time in another discussion, I would add other groups to that, like the hundreds of Israeli families who send their kids to our school, who are members of Temple Betham, but who are still learning if they feel comfortable davening with us, praying with us, and and on and on and on. So many interesting subgroups. Karen has been sitting there patiently, waiting to chime in. Karen, you get the last question or comment before we go on to the next um, slide and learning a little more from our friend Casper. Uh, I I agree
3: that the importance, whatever you've just said, so there was Perhaps a misunderstanding, but what I meant by that was when kids talk about other and secular and whatever out there, one can say, this is what we do in the home. And you can have a friend who goes to a church, fine, you know, but we, it's it's about the translation of Judaism to your family and kids that really is in the home. And that's all I meant. Absolutely same importance, for sure. The other thing I was saying about the texting or whatever outside the shul, I think there has to be, and maybe there is, or at least I feel it, a kind of respect that wouldn't necessarily let me do what I might do in the home or driving away once I'm off the premises, But if I'm on the premises, there has to, for me, be a certain kind of respectful behavior about the rules and rights. That's all I'm saying.
1: Beautiful. I love that, that there are boundaries once you're on that site and there's something about the place that gives sanctity that that sanctity gives you space to to invite rules in. Great. Okay. we are going to move from the collective to the individual And before we do that, I'm going to stop the screen share for a moment and share a little bit with all of you about this idea of um, individual ritual practice and the concept of uh, what it means to ritually engage from a secular perspective. So in order to explain this a little better... I want you to understand that the author of The Power of Ritual is a very, very different uh, author and takes a completely different approach than a lot of the other books that I'm recommending. By the way, is anybody reading any of the books that I recommend? Is anyone going for it? Anybody ordering them? You got You really got to do it. Let me know if you do it. I'm happy. I will sponsor the books. Let me know. Really. Um, the The Power of Ritual is totally different. Partially because Casper is a, um, a a student of the Harvard Div School, the Divinity School, and it grew up without religious traditions, and understands different religious traditions with a complexity and a sense of nuance and a trustworthiness starting from how well he understands Judaism, that helps kind of lend a a textured meaning to every religion that he approaches. It's really impressive. And even in his understanding of all these religious traditions, it's his interest to introduce the ritual approach of life to secular minded individuals without introducing them to the religiosity behind those rituals. He's interested in these ritual practices, okay? It's really, really, really excellent. So, one of these things comes from something that he sort of discovered that a friend of his was doing, and that he um, did... Uh, First in, in, in person format and then, uh, began, um, doing in, um, a podcast form now going on five years. So I want to give credit to the person, um, that he gave credit to, whose name is Vanessa Zoltan. So she's the initiator of this idea. And the idea is that she was reading some Charlotte Bronte, and she was a classmate of his at the Div School, okay, at the, at the Harvard Divinity School. And she grew up a kid of a Holocaust survivor family, Shoah survivor family, devoutly secular Jewish family, okay. And she was very into the idea of a close reading group, but not one on divine literature. She was interested in the idea of doing it with literature that was spiritual or sacred to her. So they had a group on Jane Eyre. They had a group on Charlotte Bronte's stuff. She was very into this idea. So... Casper gets into the idea that there are many, many ways of getting into close reads. He even mentions pardes, which is an ancient Jewish way of approaching a close read of a text. That is finding the pshat, the plain meaning of a text, the remez, the hint of the text, the drash, and the sod, the secret. So each of the, of the deeper and deeper and deeper levels of a text. There is a Christological take on the idea of a close read of a text, but the most important thing to know and to understand that's so, it's so subtle because it's so natural to us as Jews, but it's so rarely done in the secular world as a, as a ritual approach is a close read on a small chunk of text. We're used to doing book reports. We're used to doing chapter reports, but they were taking sentences. They were taking sentences from Not the New Testament, right? Not the book of James, not from the Hebrew Bible. They were taking sentences from Charlotte Bronte. And later, as Casper fell in love with this idea, he was taking stuff from Harry Potter. And they were following this concept of Lectio Divina one way of thinking through this are doing the steps. So, you choose the text that you're going to sort of pray through and the text, this is the important thing. It's it's tiny, right? It's it's just it's just a line. You're picking a line that you're going through. And then you sort of put yourself in a quiet environment. You become intentional because this is a ritual. You're doing this in a group. He mentions the idea of chavruta of not doing this alone. Okay? First, you read the text slowly and prayerfully, and you're listening for what what sort of the spiritual meaning is that's going to come down. Then, meditatio. When something strikes you, you stop and you rest with it. You repeat the word or the phrase. You let it speak to you in a personal way. Maybe you memorize it. You repeat it to yourself. You let your mind interact with it. Oratio begins your dialogue with God. Maybe you sort of formulate like a prayer around as a response to God. What do you maybe want to say to God around this idea? And then a contemplation. You rest in God's presence and you sort of sit there and see what is it that God is saying. Now the secular version of this and the idea behind this is to come up with different steps to go through one line that don't ask these questions directly asking God but rather asking us to combine the Pardes approach and the Lectio Divina approach. So their book group on Harry Potter, for example, would do at stage 1, what's literally happening in the narrative? Where are we in the story? What does it sound like? Shot, right? So Jewish. Then Stage two, kind of dipping into this Lectio Divina approach. What allegorical images, stories, songs, or metaphors show up for you? So what's showing up in your mind? What's coming to you? Stage three, what experiences have you had in your own life that come to mind? Stage four, what action are you called to take? And this was their reading group. So, one challenge that I have for you is to think this week and come back next week with this idea and an answer to the question if you could have a sacred text that did this, if you could pick any sacred text to do this with, what would it be? Look at what this secular person did in taking two beautiful, authentic traditions, individual concepts, bringing them into a group tradition and created something beautiful out of it. This is a model. Next week, I'm going to take some of these beginning inventions of ritual, everything from the paper crumpling with the salt If you're behind on that, go ahead and listen to module one on the podcast to this idea of the Lectio Divina Pardes reading group model. And you can read about it more in The Power of Ritual or contact me if you want more of the excerpt of the chapter. And we're going to begin doing some spiritual mapping to see if there's something that you can create, maybe for this Elul, something intentional and ritual. I hope you're beginning to see that there are really, really rich and ripe rituals out there to create. This is not just a nothing. There are so many amazing rituals that can be created out there on the basis of authentic things, and they can be repurposed and they can be created for things that are really meaningful in your own life. And nothing is too serious and nothing is too lighthearted. Harry Potter isn't even off the table, okay?